This is Unlikable Female Characters, the podcast featuring feminist thriller writers in conversation about women who don't give a damn if you like them. I'm Kristen LaBianca, and I'm here with Lane Fargo. Hello. And we're very excited today to be joined by a special guest, Rhea Mukherjee, author of The Body Myth. And Rhea, you are joining us from the other side of the world. You are in India. I am in India. Yep, in Bangalore. That's very cool because we, we, we've had a guest who is in Canada, but this is like our first like outside of North America. It's, it's pretty exciting. Um, so one of the ways that we usually kick off this podcast is we complain about the weather and it's, you probably have very different weather than we do. So let's hear it. What's it like in Bangalore right now? It's exceedingly hot and uh, climate change is real because Bangalore is known as the air conditioned city of India, which means it's always at like 75 degrees. But this mm-hmm. summer... We're at like 90, 95. And, uh, oh, my. Oh. I mean, we go in Celsius here, but I'm just, you know, saying it in Fahrenheit. But it's like, oh, my God, it's boiling hot over here. And uh, there was a period in Bangalore where none of the houses even had fa- like fans are pretty common in India. So mm-hmm. there was a period in, in India where people didn't even have fans. Forget about air conditioners. And now everybody's just getting air conditioners, which is wow. Yeah, that is intense. So like yeah. how like has this been happening gradually or is it just like mm. bam all of a sudden this year it's like no i hot. mean there's definitely been a pickup in the last three to four years we've seen this and uh i can't remember bangalore ever being this hot like this summer has been yeah really vicious i i i, I just have no memory of bangalore ever being this hot that is crazy mm-hmm. yeah it's like it's like quite cold here um but it's allegedly spring, which I, we really have yet to see What's spring the actually arrive. Uh, it's like around 45 uh, Fahrenheit. Uh, yeah. So you've, you've got quite a different story. Uh, yes. That's really interesting. I didn't know that uh, Bangalore was like typically cooler than the rest of the yeah. country. That's really cool. Yeah. In Chicago, it's been like spring and then winter and then spring again. Like we had a snowstorm last Sunday, <laughs> just oh. a couple inches, oh, but wow. we were all pretty over it. We thought maybe it was to celebrate the Game of Thrones premiere. Chicago was just getting like really into it, but <laughs> um, yeah, it's awful. I'm like ready for real spring. Yeah, it would be nice to you know have spring that lasts longer than like two days, which is typically yeah. what what we get. But um, so that concludes the weather bitching portion <laughs> of the podcast. So now we can move on to the feminism part. Um, so I'm going to tell our listeners a little bit about Rhea. Um, Rhea Mukherjee received her MFA from California College of the Arts in San Francisco. Her fiction and nonfiction has been published in Scroll.in, Southern Humanities Review, Out of Print, QLRS, and Bengal Lights, among others. Her previous stories have been Pushcart nominees. That's cool. A Glimmer Train Very Short Story Fiction finalists and semi-finalists for the Black Lawrence Press Award. Rhea spent her childhood in the U.S. and her teens in India. She currently resides in Bangalore, where it's very hot, and where she co-founded the Bangalore Writers Workshop in 2012, and she co-runs Write Leela Write, a design and content laboratory. And Rhea and I met during uh, the Pitch Wars contest in, was it 2017? Yes. Uh, I was was Rhea's mentor during the contest. Um, I read her manuscript, which had a different title at the time, but it was uh, so captivating and compelling that I basically fell in love with it from the first page, Uh, which is, it's really exciting to be a mentor, like reviewing submissions and encounter something that like grabs you in that way. It was like, it grabbed me in the way like an already published book would grab me. Uh, Just so cool. 
The, uh, you know, it's funny you say that because I just wrote a post about this, the long, you know, the history of getting this book published and it, it was the, and I wrote about this period of time where I had just given up hope and just shelved it for six months. And the pitch wars was the one thing that made me get up and be like, ah, let me try one more time. So mm. you're absolutely responsible for bringing <laughs> this book here because no, seriously, because that was my last ditch attempt. And I was like, I, it's over after this. Oh my gosh. Well, that is amazing. And I'm so yeah. glad that you decided to enter it. Um, I myself kind of have a similar story when I entered. I had just sort of like I had done a ton of querying, not with um, the project that I entered with in 2015, but with other projects. And I kept getting the same feedback that was mm-hmm. like, you're a great writer and you have no plot. And I was like, that's true. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do about it. Like, I could write beautiful sentences and they don't go anywhere. Um, and so I heard about Pitch Wars and, like, I had never – I had heard about it a few years previous. And I had never had, like, a manuscript that was, like, ready mm-hmm. at the time that it was, like, time to apply. So this time I was like, oh, well, I might as well try it. And I almost didn't bother filling out the form because, the, like, the application was sort of long, and I was that was about how confident I was feeling in wow. uh-huh. my writing at that time. I was like, uh, I don't know if I'm, I'm worth filling out a long form. Right. Um, but ultimately wow. I did it, and it was really, like, uh, being selected by my mentor, Kelly Garrett, was really what changed everything for me as far as writing goes. Um, so, yeah, Pitch Wars is, like, it's, like, legit. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it, really, it really good is. thing. It really is. I mean, all of us, right? All three of us. In this yes, we are all network. products of the Pitch Wars system, which is really cool. Yeah, and Rhea and I, we were in, we were in the same the class same, yeah. in Pitch Wars. And then we were on, yeah, woo, 2017. Um, and then we were on sub at the same time, and we were, like, sub buddies. We were writing emails back and forth while we were going through that yep. delightful process. <laughs> so much fun, the process of being on sub, for sure. Yeah. Um, but Rhea, how about you tell us a little bit about this amazing book, The Body Myth, which came out in February. Is that right? Yep. February 26th. Okay. Um, so, um, well, the book is a little bit, it's a, it's a bit of a strange novel. It's uh, <laughs> rather, and it's it's really intimate in, in terms of um, the story itself is very intimate. It revolves around three characters. Pretty, you know, um, I mean, the atmosphere is, of course, set in a fictional city in India, but... Um, the story is really insular and I think, you know, that was the one part of the book that I really wanted to make sure stayed that way. And I think, uh, a lot of people, you included, were drawn to that. So that makes me like really happy, like throughout the process it was, it was always about these three people. And, um, the story is really about a, a young grieving widow. Um, and her, her name is Mira and she runs into a woman, uh, at a park. And uh, she sees her having a seizure, but she thinks that she might have been faking it. Um, anyway, so this this kind of weird circumstance uh, leads her to meeting uh, this woman, Sarah, who was having a seizure, and her husband, Rahil. And Mira quickly gets drawn into uh, both of their lives, um, almost obsessively. Actually, pretty obsessively. Definitely obsessively. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, and, um, you know, there's there's a lot of other themes kind of stitched in over here, w- which have a lot to do with uh, philosophy, because Mira is a book nerd and, you know, kind of intellectualizes everything. Um, and Sarah is, mis- you know, mysteriously, chronically ill um, and uh, with, you know, and, and Mira, su- I mean, I guess suspects a lot about uh, you know, where this illness is coming from and what her illness really is. And um, so it's, yeah, so I mean, it's really hard to explain your own book. I've just realized it, this. It really is. It's, oh my it's God. Like, 
and it never gets easier which like no. is annoying it seems like it should at some point but then it's always like nope. i don't know it's about these people and i made it's them about up. these people uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly it's about people from my head um please read it that's basically basically <laughs> yes but it's so it's so compelling because both Mira and Sarah are like they're I feel like classic unlikable female characters that they're mm-hmm. they're very complicated, yeah. and it's um it's not like there is you know one character in this book who is you know sort of the likable innocent person like they all are kind of doing complicatedly bad things to each other um, through the right. the the way this relationship unfolds. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what it was like to write a story with two unlikable female leads. Yeah, so Mira says that, you know, nobody wants to be the villain. Um, in you know, it, and I'm talking about like your mundane kind of regular life. You don't want to be the bitchy person or you don't want to be the person who gives, you know, um, the untru- you know, someone who's not trusted or, you mm-hmm. know, just looks like, like, you know, seems to be in a bad light. Um, and so the, the thing about, uh, you know, perspective is like when I look at my own life, I realize and especially when I was writing this book, I, you know, there's so many different perceptions of people um, that, you know, people around me, like my friends and my family and uh, people that I work with. And they all have a very different perception of me because mm-hmm. I'm a different you know, you're a different person or you react or respond to the world very differently because there's so many different expectations and even power structures in place when you're responding to the world. And then your own, you know, your own physical history and mental history and your own traumas. So when you're reacting to someone, it's not always, you know, it's not just one concise personality. Um, So true. so, So, I mean, I think that was, you know, Like when I was writing that book, I think that uh, when I was writing this book, it kind of opened up that whole idea of like when people look at you, um, you know, your choices, what seems so normal or so like, uh, you know, inevitable for you, it can seem really frustrating for other people. And one, you know, there was there, there were a couple of people who read this book and said, I was I was reading and I was going page after page and I couldn't put it down. But then I was so angry with them. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, okay. But then I was like, I got it because some people, for some people, Mira is, you know, can really get on your nerves because she is making bad choice after bad choice after bad choice. And she seems to be aware of it. Yeah, she does. Like, she's a very intelligent person. She's not just sort of like bumbling through the world. Right. Like, unknowingly making bad choices. Like, she she does seem to know it and she's making the bad choices anyway, which just like, it makes her frustrating, but also really interesting. Right. And, and I and I think what's interesting about this, especially with women, is that, you know, when they're naive or like you said, bumbling through, there is like I think society is somehow trained to give sympathy to that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, she doesn't know what she's doing. Oh, like, you know, she's a doe idea and therefore mm-hmm. she's making these choices or, you know, you have to either be victimized like circumstances were such and this is why this happened to her. Um, but when someone is acutely aware of what they're doing and being vulnerable and honest about why they're doing it, because even if they don't have the answers, somehow that, you know, can be frustrating, uh, even to us, even to women who consider themselves to be, you know, absolutely outspoken feminists um, mm-hmm. like me. Because sometimes I see, like, when you see a movie or when I read a book and I see a woman being very articulate about what she's doing, but I don't like what she's doing, um, mm-hmm. it, it strikes me as like, oh, why are you doing that? I get very judgy. Mm-hmm. 
And I think we're conditioned. I think we're Real, conditioned. Yeah, we totally are. It's like even even when you are a, a feminist and you are like so tuned in to other people doing that, like mm-hmm. sometimes we just have this automatic reaction of of judgment and disapproval that's sort of like we've just been trained to act that way. And it's really disturbing to like see yourself do that. Right. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. Because I don't like, you know, I think in real life I would be – I would probably tolerate someone like Sarah. Maybe that's just me, but I would probably be very frustrated with Mira because, mm-hmm. um, you know, she's she she gets clean. You know, and there's a lens of looking at Mira where she's being clingy, clingy to an ideal, um, yes. and you know, and that kind of like completely wipes out all the other stuff she's doing, like being a teacher and you know having all these great ideas and having a good relationship with her father and you know choosing not to expand her life in other ways um so but you know mira is is just completely uh, using grief as a way uh, you know i mean sorry she's using sarah and rahul or and her obsession with them almost like a coping mechanism for grief mm-hmm. and i think that's another unexplored thing that you know another unexplored um, space that I was going from when I was writing this book is like how how we carry grief and how grief is kind of um, and I've never experienced a grief as large as Mira's um, in terms of losing like a, a, a partner a romantic partner I think that's a very different kind of um, loss and it's a very right. violent one because it completely uproots your future like you know there, mm-hmm. there are people that you know sometimes when you get to a certain age um, people around you in your family they do pass away and somehow there's there's this demarcation of um, your past and how you keep growing from that but when somebody in your friend circle or your um, you know or your romantic partner or a child passes away that somehow like for me I just I look at it from a like it, it robs you of your future or your feelings of the future in a very different way and so I was yeah, just trying to sure. put myself in that kind of mindset and thinking well what you know what replaces that what do you do if you 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 just can't cope like you know like you're supposed to cope and um i just think we find really odd ways to cope and some of them just don't seem very obvious to us but some seem very obvious like what mira is doing in this right and that's so interesting that you bring up like the way you're supposed to grieve or the way you're supposed to cope with a loss like so much of what we love to explore on this podcast is women who are behaving in some way that is other than the way they are supposed to behave because like there's, mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's expectations for how we're supposed to behave about everything. So right. it's really interesting to kind of dismantle the different ways that those expectations um, really affect people and how they act. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the setting. So this is set in like a fictional city in India. Was it based mm-hmm. off of like any real place or is it just sort of, you know, the well, place of your dreams? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's very, um, it's pretty much set in a very uh, urban Indian context of, um, you know, today. And it's set mm-hmm. in with the lens of someone who's definitely grown up in a upper middle class kind of situation in India. I mean, it definitely has that lens to it. Um, because India is just so diverse in terms of socioeconomics, class and caste, and all of these things intersect in so many different ways that you can literally live in so many different kinds of bubbles mm-hmm. and at the same time kind of interact with it all. Because when you're on the... Because I try to explain India to you know people who have never been here and it's like 
when you're on the road, right? So your privileges count for a lot, right? So if you're from a, se a certain se a socioeconomic class, when you get on the road, the roads are everybody's, right? Technically, mm -hmm. but that you know that so the infrastructure is you know basically pretty shitty in India, and mm -hmm. so you you have your crumbling sidewalks and you have you know <laughs> crappy roads and you have a hundred different kinds of vehicles on the road honking away to glory, but. And then I'm walking, but then I can I I can walk into the fancy coffee shop on my right, and then I can go to the pub on my left. So and you know, and then I will go to a certain grocery store and get all my stuff. And if I need, you know, and I, and and you know, depending on how you're brought up in India, then you know you will have certain other kinds of globalized uh, ingredients and references and food um, that are that are like globally recognized. But so mm -hmm. that's what I mean by saying that it's a very like middle to upper middle class urban lens in right. India, which I think is important to acknowledge because, uh, you know, India is just too, too huge a country uh, in terms to be, you know, to you know, try to represent it through two characters by a few characters here. Right. This is there is no like one universal Indian experience like Absolutely. there, there Absolutely. are many different ways um, but mm. it's an interesting it's an interesting point of view like a very contemporary novel centered on female characters in India I feel like that is that is not like a niche that is hugely uh, common for readers in the US anyway to encounter right um, so I think that's a really awesome um, thing about this book that Thank it's just you. like uh, it's really eye-opening. Um, do you think there are different expectations for Indian women as far as how they're supposed to behave and mm -hmm. how they need to be likable as opposed to uh, women elsewhere? Yeah, uh, def well, yeah, definitely. And also there's a lot, there's a lot in common, right? So um, when we're talking about characters uh, like Mira and Sarah, I mean, these are women that I, I, I see different versions of every day in terms of how they've been brought up, what they have access to every day, their daily, you know, kinds of um, lifestyle and, you know, topics of discussions, what they think about. But um, I think, you know, the whole idea of marriage is exceptionally potent in India, um, mm. even more, more so than the West, like a hundred times more, because it's like, uh, you know, you go ahead, get your education. So even if you're from a more liberal family and you're economically well off, uh, you know, life doesn't really count until you're married. Like, okay, so when are you getting mm. married? Oh, that's great that you went and you did your master's and you studied and whatever. But when are you getting married? And, and, <laughs> right. and you know, and you need to get married. So and then we will get you married. And then we will get you married. So I yeah. mean, so that. So I mean, you know. And and then the modern arranged marriage is still very much uh, a thing here, right? Um, but right. it's also coinciding. It's also coinciding with a lot of uh, other cultural influences uh, in in the urban capacity. Okay, so I'm speaking for urban India. But of course, we have Tinder here. We have Bumble here too now, and lots of women are, um, you know, kind of negotiating this space between, you know, having um, having more conservative family, but then also dating online and moving out for jobs and having more independent lifestyles. But one thing in urban India is like, you know, if you come from, say, you're most likely, if you're living in, living and working in the city that you grew up in, where your family is, you're most likely living at home mm. uh, with your parents, because that's just how culturally it is. Like you live with your family. There's no reason for you to, 
live independently unless you know you get married mm-hmm. um, and so that's mostly that's by and large how it goes of course there's a lot of exceptions and with a country like India which has a population which is ridiculous you have to remember that the exceptions can sometimes almost mirror the stereotype mm, if that makes okay. any sense because okay? yeah, yeah, yeah. the exceptions themselves can be a really heavy weight because mm-hmm. it's just because of sheer numbers right. but culturally speaking marriage living with the family having that kind of negotiation between your work life and then coming back and you know having certain expectations about when you'll have kids and you know settling down quote unquote is right. is very much a part of this uh, of the culture um another thing about you know being a, a young widow um from a middle class family is um you know i don't think you know a woman's romantic and sexual needs would be looked at uh very seriously or spoken about it'd be very very hushed up and mm. also like sex does not exist with indian parents of our generation like they will not <laughs> discuss it they okay. will not use that you know so it's you know that's why it's just like get like get married stands for everything like oh you right. know you're of age you need to have sex you need to have babies you need to have a house so right it's, so just it's get, under one get word. married is all get is like the heading that's the heading <laughs> that just covers it correct all. correct <laughs> so so you know so uh so so for a woman like mira you know uh it wouldn't be a bit like from the city and the and the and the people that she's surrounded by it wouldn't it would the next step would be or the liberal like the most liberal it would be like oh she gets to get remarried mm-hmm. and that would be pretty liberal by itself like oh, oh okay. okay she's getting remarried like not grieving for her husband forever but that's you know that's talking about a whole different um dynamic there but yeah but you uh definitely uh you know getting into a situation uh with Rahil and Sarah and now also talking about bisexuality here these are themes that would not be commonly talked about um uh, in a, any capacity on a in a in a public space or with people elder to you and things mm-hmm. like that um definitely not but um you know there are people who would discuss it with their friends and it's not like polyamory does not happen in there it does it's just you know if you look at the online space um there's a lot more of nuanced culture uh when it comes to expressing pe- expressing lgbtqi uh issues and sexuality and body image and a lot of the globalized issues that we're all talking about uh that mm-hmm. definitely comes out uh, on the online space um on Facebook and Twitter and I see a lot of uh, similarities there in terms of social justice movements and the way we're talking about um all of these things all of these themes mm-hmm. that even you know crop up in the books uh, all these questions you're asking about you know the culture of marriage where people are challenging it and questioning it but also it's a numbers thing right because when we're on Facebook and when we're articulating all these issues it's in English and yes we're a colonized country so most of india who goes to urban schools we all speak english but the country is so big that it's like only 15% of us that speak english but that oh, that's wow. because most of the country is rural but I, right. like a person like me doesn't know what rural india looks like or see, you know what the reality of rural india really is i have no idea because you live in this bubble of urban india Right, and so right. that's the huge demarcation and when you talk about 15% uh you know 15% of india is still a large 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 number 
Right. Yeah, that's like a, a huge number, but you know, that also means the 85% does of, not. So you right. can yeah, so now you understand like how skewed it is. So when you're talking about all these issues and yes, there are very liberal people and there are people who are super progressive and there are lots of movements happening, there are lots of communities, you know, really talking about uh these the the micro problems that come with these problems including caste, including class. Um but mm-hmm. it's still a very small number. Uh, right. comparatively to what the reality of the country is. That is so interesting. I never really thought about it in terms of how much of India is rural. Because, um, like, you you yeah. think, you think like, oh, well, the cities are really populated, but, like, right. maybe the rural areas aren't. But that's, nope. that's, like, yeah. that's not exactly. how it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly crowded country. It's, it's, a, it's amazing that we're one country also, just because we're also intersected by so many different languages and so many mm-hmm. different microcultures with every little you know every little uh, region that you come from so yeah there's a lot of identity and a lot of sub identities over here that just i don't know it's it's actually quite bizarre and fascinating at the same time yes that is very interesting how has your book been received by people who are in your bubble um in, in your community my, so very uh few people have read it here uh, although the book is coming out in india okay uh, in in june so. that's exciting but, yeah but uh but the people that have read it here has it's been really really well received but it's going to be interesting to see how it is uh taken on a slightly larger scale when it's published on a more national level because right now it's more like my peers who are here and i i mean i wouldn't expect them not to like it in theory you know mm-hmm. like all what what the book covers so right yeah it's always terrifying when people like when people read your book and you're like what are you going to think of it i mean I, like in terms of you know there are people who are in your circle who you're like okay these people will like it and then it's like what about the larger community what how mm-hmm. is that going to be received um i feel like it's very different um to think about like people who are in sort of my peripheral circle around where I live reading my work and uh, especially when you know you write about topics that include sexuality it's always like kind of like it's a very vulnerable thing to do um, to just sort of put that out there for the whole world to see Um, but that is really exciting that uh, it'll be published there in June. How do you feel about that? Like when you're writing, um, you know, was it received? Did you ever feel like you got any reaction just because of the bisexuality in your in your work? Um, I feel like not not really. There have been like I know I've talked about it on this podcast before, but some like reviews on Goodreads where people say like random shitty things like I like this book, but it was full of unnecessary trash, like Uh. just stuff like that. Or, you know, comments, (laughs) comments like specifically about like, you know, I like the character, but I I don't know why it had to have all this stuff about, you know, sexuality in it, which I mean, I just think like, what a strange way to approach reading. Mm -hmm. Like, I only care about the character or I only care about the mystery. I don't care about, you know, anything else that's happening in the world of the story like I mean for me it's really important to write a book that represents the real world and even though like I write in a in the mystery genre like Uh it should still reflect the actual world that we all live in so it's very strange to me that people are like I didn't like that like well what that exists in the world what what like 
are you denying that that that's a real thing in the world um but when i was first like uh getting my book published i like i had concerns that a publisher would ask me to change some of that just because mm-hmm. um like the mystery genre even more so than literary fiction is like a very um like historically straight white men yeah. writing yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. you know, so I was sort of like, I really hope that you know that doesn't become an issue. And my publisher has been amazing. It was n- it was never even remotely brought up, um, wow. which is really yeah. great That's because, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, just like thinking about like you know, oh, are there other mysteries that are like this that you know feature a a bisexual woman as the main character? Like, no, now there are starting to become more, right. which is amazing. But it's sort of just like I I felt like why haven't there been maybe it's because no one wants it um so it's, it was really amazing that minotaur was so uh great about that and it was never even remotely an issue um which i'm really glad about because like in general i'm open to making changes of course uh based on editorial feedback but that was really like one thing that i was like willing to like fight for if necessary and then i totally didn't have to fight at all it was great <laughs> I think it's more um, acceptable, like in psychological thrillers, uh-huh. than in mystery for sure. And yeah. so far, I've had only really positive response to the bisexual characters in my book. Although, what I keep encountering is that um, people assume like every single character in the book is bi, even though the main character is definitely straight. Uh-huh. <laughs> people assume she's bi too. It's like they just apply it to everyone, and I'm like, okay, uh, okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are definitely worse things to assume, but. Uh... <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> like you said, these things happen in the world. Like, come on, get over it. It's just like I feel like because now we're in an era where we're talking about these things and what we're writing and when when somebody re- reads something and it just sounds so everyday, it, I think it just makes a lot of people uncomfortable some people very uncomfortable and that's why they just, you know, respond like that. And so that's really yeah. interesting. It's like something that you are not exposed to or something that you in theory do not like or think is wrong is, mm-hmm. you know, suddenly just makes you completely uncomfortable when you see it like as plain as day and as mundane and as domestic as, you know, anything else. And I think that's deeply like, you know, disturbing to an individual who comes from a very different worldview. Yeah, for sure. Like rather than having something be like whispered or like crouched right. in secrecy, it's just like, there it is um but that's also like that's how like change gradually happens is that eventually like people are exposed to it and they get over that feeling and so that's like that's really exciting Mm -hmm. about being able to put out you know art that is like that because like in it in its small way that exposure uh, and that representation like can slowly and gradually shape the world which is like really cool yeah one thing I really liked about your book, Rhea, is that um, when Mira realizes she's attracted to Sarah, it's not this like, I mean, we don't really know if it's the first time she's ever been attracted to a woman or not, right? But she's not like upset about it or freaked out by it. She's just like so into Sarah, like that's all that matters. And she, they right. don't really put labels on right. it. There's not a lot of drama around that. I mean, there's plenty of other drama, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I liked that a lot. It was just very matter of fact, like she's attracted to both of them and that's it. Yeah, I mean, I, was, I think, uh, and thank you for saying that, because I, I was really trying to be conscious about that, is that, you know, when you're trying to show that sometimes beyond beyond all, the, you know, the, uh, the 
the labels is the point of you fa- you you're obsessed with someone or you fall in love with someone or you're sexually attracted to someone it's just someone it's got nothing to do with you know gender right yeah it's all about the individuals in this book and like you don't really get into like analyzing what it means which mm-hmm. is also really like refreshing it's, it's just like it is what it is these people are who they are and you know let's watch this story unfold it's drama unfold <laughs> yes <laughs> so your book is like it's got elements of psychological thriller which mm-hmm. is really cool because we've got this obsessive relationship going on um how much of the psychological thriller element did with like how much of that was part of your original idea for the book or versus mm-hmm. how much evolved over time so such a good question right because um i love thrillers um which is why i'm so excited about the fact that i got an uh, arc for, arc of lane's book but <laughs> um yeah no but I, I i i love thrillers and um the thing is um but when i used when i wrote and i used to primarily write short stories before um they were more of the literary genre kind of situation just because of you know it was more of like kind of slice of life kind of talking about some kind of you know social reality some mm-hmm. kind of you know you know whatever literary fiction is <laughs> right so so it was it was always kind of pegged into that and i always thought like the th- the thing with the with the thrillers that i you know kind of read um they the right you know it wasn't about the writing as much it was more about how do i get you to the next page mm-hmm. but that but those are books that i really enjoyed and those are the books that actually gave me comfort during really rough times in my life because it gave me something to escape to right um even though i read a lot of literary fiction but sometimes literary fiction is more like you know you, there's a more stoic mood to it you have to sit and you have to mm-hmm. you know kind of ingest uh, digest it in a very different way um so i wanted to do that in terms of uh you know when i want you want to write something that i that i would enjoy reading and that was something uh critical to uh the process of this book so every like when i started the first chapter i was like i have to do something that kind of creates a thriller aspect to this book and that was uh part of the reason also why it was a shorter novel because i had uh, you know my the narrative arcs in this book are very tight um mm-hmm. there and and also the chron- chronologically it's all over the place but you know but but it's still very like um uh, dense and uh so yeah i think it was a very important part uh, but i was very nervous about how that was going to be received and i know kristin we talked about this also about how we were really going to try to like pitch this book when i started you know going out to agents and stuff like mm-hmm. that because mm-hmm. it was always you know like well you don't want to say that you're really a thriller but then you know if you say you're completely the refiction do you not want to also say that it has a thriller aspect to it so right. you know it was it was a it was a bit confusing and to be honest i don't think the book is being really talked about as a thriller right now which is like hmm interesting but a lot of people are talking about the mental illness aspect mm-hmm. um of it and the body uh which is great and which i you know completely like i'm so happy that those are things people are pulling out but you know from the narrative structure i still believe there is like my conscious choice was to have a thriller aspect to it but i don't know if that's going to be like what the readers actually get out of it yeah i definitely like I interpret it as a thriller. Maybe that's because like I wish everything was a thriller. Mm-hmm. But also I think yeah. it's just like you have that that 
incredibly strong narrative pull with this, you know, obsession. And it's like, um, you know, there's no like murders in this book, but that doesn't mean it's not right. a thriller still. I definitely think that um, you blend the idea of like this literary love story in with the psychological thriller elements really well. And it would be totally selling the book short to sort of um, say that, you know, it's just, you know, straight up literary because it just has that amazing pull. Um, and I definitely think that thriller fans would enjoy it for sure. I'm so glad you think that. <laughs> yeah. So while we're on the topic of thrillers, um, do you have a favorite um, unlikable female character? Actually, it could be in thrillers or it can be in any fiction, but we always like to this check is, in with our guests. This is going to be really weird. Okay. Okay. But one story that I was obsessed with. Do you guys remember B.C. Andrews? Yes. Flowers in the yeah. Attic. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Classic. Classic. I was obsessed <laughs> with that book. Like I once talked about that to a professor and like she like, you know, made a face at me like, uh, why are you talking to me about that book? But I was just like, <laughs> she really literally made a face at me. So, I was, so then I was like, maybe I shouldn't talk about this book in public. But then, but then, you know, I have to be honest. And I was really obsessed with those twins and the mother. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I forgot her name. I forgot her name. But the mother, oh, the creepy name. mother, uh, yes. who locked her kids up in a basement and right. basically went along to live life uh, high with, with the uncle, I think. And like her husband had died. And so, you know, she basically abused her kids. But like she had, um, but she would keep coming and promising her kids that, you know, there would be freedom and there would be gifts and there would be a better life very soon. But like her life just kept getting better and better. And uh, the heroine in the book uh, is, you know, one of the older sisters. And she just makes a lot of weird, bad choices and also incest. But it's just a, it was <laughs> also a that. Very, also that. But it was just a, it was a book that I just never like it never got out of my head. There was something very claustrophobic, yeah. very dark about that book. Um, everything that you should, you know, say that you hate and, you know, everything that is supposed to be bad with basic humanity is in that <laughs> book. But, but there's still something very compelling about it. And I don't know, you know, I, I, I thought that that would be most honest to tell you about. <laughs> yeah, that is a, that's a really fantastic example. And it's so interesting um, that you mentioned a professor sort of acting like that mm-hmm. was not really an acceptable Mm -hmm. thing to talk about like so much good writing and good storytelling exists in the margins of like you know genre fiction or just Mm -hmm. sort of like unpalatable topics and Mm -hmm. you know subjects and we've got incest and creepy basement stuff and Mm -hmm. you know like yeah uh, that doesn't you know make but those were real stories exactly and they were they were talking about really dark things but there was so much craft in these stories and just the imagination to go there and say you know i'm going to write about this and give it the whole integrity of a story and right. do that like yeah but you can't talk about it in a like in a grad school class right right you have to <laughs> talk like, about like you know old dead white men it, instead yeah. like those yeah. are yeah um i was at an event not long ago and there was um a notable male author who gave a keynote address that was about how all um all books are actually crime stories which was a very interesting point of view to take. And I actually kind of agree. Uh, But he gave all these examples of books that were, they were all written by men. Um, He was just sort of like, he was basically saying like all great literature is, you know, at its heart, crime fiction. And he was talking about like Charles Dickens and, 
you know, um, other blah, 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 dead white guys. Mm -hmm. And um, he didn't mention a single female author. And even at some point, someone was like, hey, what about Agatha Christie? And he was like, yeah, she's great, too. And then he, like, (laughs) resumed talking about other She's great, too? She had an empire that way. I know. (laughs) I know. It's just crazy um, because, you know, like, it's – it's fine to act like books written by men are, you know, these are the serious works that it's okay to talk about. Um, but books written by women aren't treated the same. And it's like exactly. kind of ridiculous to sort of brush past someone like um, Agatha Christie or Dorothy Sayers in this mm-hmm. very specific conversation or like, you know, all of like Gothic literature, which is at its yeah, heart exactly. crime fiction, Yes, you know, um, he didn't mention it at all but i think that like you know this it's all one conversation you know what what equals literature and what work is taken seriously um and it's really unfortunate that like some work like vc andrews is sort of you know that's not real literature or like i'm you know valley the valley of the dolls like one of my absolute yeah, favorite Valley books. Of the Dolls. Yep. Yeah. Um, That's also dismissed as like pulpy and. Yes, exactly. exactly. You're right. So, like, these, you know, pulpy books that are written by women are dismissed even more than pulpy books written by men. Um, exactly. Yeah. And that's like, you know, that's not, that's not fair to just classify no. anything that isn't, you know, this like a high minded, restrained sort of, you know, quote unquote dignified storytelling as right. inferior is just ridiculous and i think like all these you know these pulpy books like you said valley of the dolls and vc andrews and even agatha christie i mean these mm-hmm. were so influential on women and yes. you know passed down uh you know like reading them from like when you were a schoolgirl to in college and i remember like i i remember sneaking jackie collins books because they were full mm-hmm. of sex when i was a teenager from my aunt's <laughs> bookstore and i would just read it and i would just read and read and read but like there were these are also moments of like you know women also discovering so many parts about life and their bodies and sex and just so many other facets of humanity through these books that are yes. just not talked about you know yeah for sure because is, people it's... say you, you can't talk about this right <laughs> Right. And like even even now, like we're still in that place of, you know, it's not polite to talk about it. And we're, these are books that were written 40 and 50 and mm-hmm. more years ago, like that were very upfront about it. Like they knew what was up. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> they totally did. They did. Yeah. Uh, so one more question for you. What are you working on next? So uh, I am currently what I tell people is doing the research. So... <laughs> You know how that can go. Oh, but yes. <laughs> I will yeah. tell you, I will tell you, it is going to be uh, a very feminist book and it's still going to be uh, pretty dark. I'm actually working with a myth uh, that's uh, that's uh, from West India, actually uh, specific to uh, the culture, uh, the Bengali culture, which is on my father's mm. side. He's from West Bengal. Um, but they call um, one of their spirits Petni. And it's a witch that has feet that are backward. Mm. And there are many different s- stories about where you see her. And according from region to region, the stories will change. And, you know, why she comes back and why she will kill you or why you need to avoid the <laughs> pitney. But basically, <laughs> but basically, it's going to revolve around that. Okay. Um, and uh, But it's going to be a modern story. But I want to kind of use this whole idea of the witch, the female witch. 
mm-hmm. um, and kind of uh, work with you know also the modern uh, Indian urban woman right now and you know how she can also be as castigated well I mean I want to read that immediately so please Same. hurry up and write yes. it <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for the pressure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fantastic. I'm glad. I'm glad. But I have well, a thanks. lot of research to do. Yeah, that that's like the best part and also the worst part because you like yeah. it's so comforting to be like, oh, I'm researching, but it's so easy to be like researching. I'm not. For 10 I'm watching years. Netflix. Yeah, right. Exactly. I'm yeah, <laughs> exactly. just like randomly googling things and forgetting to read the article and leaving the browser tabs yep. open and calling oh it gosh. research, but yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, it's good stuff. But um, research is important. So it is like yeah, that's like I feel like stories. Like you think you know what story you're telling, and then you dig into stuff and you like uncover things that weren't even remotely on your radar that really changed the shape of a story, which is really cool um, and exciting yep. to see what what's going to become of the idea for sure. Thanks, well, Kristen. thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. It was great chatting with you. It was an absolute pleasure, guys. Uh, and uh, keep keep cool over there in uh, the the very warm, yes. no longer air conditioned city of India. Yes. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we will definitely be looking forward to what you do next. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you, Lane. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was wonderful speaking to both of you. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of Unlikable Female Characters. Don't forget to subscribe, and you can also follow us on Twitter at UnlikableFCPod for updates, book recommendations, and angry feminist rants. Our website is unlikablefemalecharacters.com, and we're also on Instagram at unlikablefemalecharacters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>